right, so uh, welcome to another episode. Uh, today we're talking about um, peat survival techniques. Um, uh, we got uh, Kevin Andrew Richards from the University of Illinois. Um, and he just was a part of this big monograph that was just published, was it a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it and, came out um, early 2019. Okay. So I just got on it. I started reading it yesterday. And, you know, the chapter title and chapter nine is Will Pete Survive in the 21st Century? And that I clicked with me right away. So we're just we're just here kind of dissecting this monograph as a whole. Um, I know it was a super long process for you. What? A couple of years, you said, to get the whole thing or? Yeah, so um, the whole idea for the monograph goes back to a conversation that I had with Amy Woods and Susan Ayers probably in, in 2015, um, and, and that was kind of just the inception point. I, I had actually, and this was long before I ever started working at the University of Illinois, but I came over here to do a guest lecture and a Friday seminar, and I think I made a passing comment at some point about how occupational socialization theory could be applied to recruiting uh, PEAT students. And that clicked with Amy, and it just so happened that her and Susan Ayers had um, already been having conversations about declining enrollments, and they wanted to do uh, a research study focused on you know, a, what the recruitment uh, scene looks like in PEAT. And so um, we started emailing back and forth, and uh, we ended up writing a, a Jopert article um, focused on practical strategies that PEAT faculty and uh, in-service uh, you know, K-12 teachers could use uh, to recruit students into PEAT. Um, and then the plan was always to do a Jopert followed by an empirical study that we would target for JTPE, and then a Quest manuscript looking at this more conceptually. Um, and so we uh, did uh, this sequential, expl uh, sequential explanatory design where we started with um, a large scale survey. Uh, and then that um, from that survey, we, we interviewed uh, selected PEAT faculty members based off of their institutional affiliations uh, in reference to the Carnegie classification system. Um, so can you can you explain the Carnegie classification system just basically? Yeah. Yeah, so um, the, the, there's uh, an organization, um, uh, and it's actually housed at Indiana University now, but I think it started with Carnegie, uh, and they um, uh, have a, a classification system to, I don't want to use the word rank, because I think that implies a hierarchy and that's misleading, but, it, but it's more like just classify uh, different types of U.S. institutions based on levels of research productivity and grantsmanship and, and, and teaching. Uh, and so um, the basic classification system divides into doctoral granting institutions, master's focused institutions, and then baccalaureate colleges. Um, and so we wanted, you know, recognizing that recruitment might be different across those three types of institutions, we wanted to intentionally sample faculty from each of those three broad classification areas to get a sense for their perceptions of recruitment and retention. Um, and, and, you know, I, I threw in the word retention there. I should add that, uh, that, you know, when we first started out with this, we were only focused on recruitment and then it kind of evolved into saying, well, when we get students into programs, we also have to kind of see them through to graduation. 
Um, and that's become more complicated due to accreditation requirements. A lot of states have adopted EdTPA. Um, and so uh, there's a lot more um, barriers or hoops that students have to jump through to get to uh, graduation and certification slash licensure. And then kind of layer that layer in with that, the fact that, that, that there are some students who might initially think that physical education uh, is a good career for them. Maybe, you know, they, they enjoyed playing sports growing up and they had an influential teacher or coach, but, but really um, their beliefs and attitudes don't align with, you know, current best practices in the field. Uh, and, and they don't, they don't, or they're unwilling to change through the teacher education process. And so we hypothesized, and this was confirmed through our data, that there are some students that maybe shouldn't be retained. Um, so a 100% retention rate might not be best. Anyway, um, you know, a long way of saying, uh, we, we started off with this uh, sequential explanatory design, surveyed and then interviewed uh, PEAT faculty members. And, and at first we were just thinking about, you know, a, a publication. Um, but then when we got our data and saw how much we had, we felt like it was going to have to be multiple articles. And uh, just around that time, Susan and I happened to come across a call for monograph proposals to the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education and um, submitted a proposal and ended up accepting us on. And so it was myself, Susan and Amy, uh, and then Kim Graber, also from the University of Illinois, uh, came on board. Um, one of our PhD students here, uh, Chad Killian, who's finishing his degree now, got involved. And then when it came to the qualitative part of the study, we realized we needed extra hands, especially since we were working on a pretty tight deadline to get the full monograph to JTPE. And so we um, uh, brought in uh, Ben Kern, who's a graduate of uh, University of Illinois and is currently at University of Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, and so, you know, we, we did the monograph. Um, and then, oh, and, and sorry, and then Tom Templin came in uh, to help with the final chapter, the one that you referred to a few minutes right. ago. And you um, had Phil Ward in that chapter two as well yep. Yep. about the uh, recruitment yeah. pipeline. Yeah, so we wanted to kind of set the scene conceptually and theoretically at the beginning. And so once, it, once this became a monograph, it became more than we expected. And we realized that we needed to kind of um, substantiate the issue up front and review the lit. And I had been in conversations with Phil over the last couple of years, and him and I served on a Shape America um, and NACI joint task force focused on recruitment. Um, and so he was kind of a logical person to turn to. So, um, you know, uh, Susan and Amy kind of introduced the monograph. Phil kind of laid the, the scene talking about recruitment and retention into Pete as a, uh, as a pipeline into the teaching force. Uh, Dr. Templin and I developed, um, you know, kind of conceptual and theoretical grounding within occupational socialization theory. Um, we have a, uh, uh, a chapter that just outlines the methods for the whole monograph. And then there are four empirical manuscripts, two focused on recruitment, quantitative followed by qualitative. And then two focused on retention, same thing, qualitative or quantitative followed by quantitative. And then at the end of the monograph, we, we kind of bring it home with, uh, you know, what does this all mean and where do we go from here? Right. And I, and I think it does suit a monograph because there's just so much there. And, you know, you you hit on a couple things already that I was I was taking notes on last night, like your piece on socialization. And I think you bring up a good topic. You talked about retention and you know if we're if we're trying to break the cycle of ineffective teaching 
low quality PE programs, we should be asking for a re-examination of those who traditionally go into pursuing careers in PE. And I think for the long time, we've had this uh, you know, elite athlete turned PE yeah. coach. And I'm putting that in you know, air quotes here. You know, so I, that was that was interesting, and I it makes sense. And you you take it in that chapter through the um, you know occupational socialization theory, but it is true. Like the people who are coming in have an athletic background; they have their experiences in PE, but we're also losing a ton of great teachers who have a horrible experience in PE because they have horrible PE teachers. And then they never even consider us as a viable option. So yeah, we're not, you know, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so we're just not tapping into the potential that's out there. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, point. So I, I uh, and I agree completely. I think we are missing out on on some students. We we tend to perpetuate this kind of intergenerational model, where the people who we recruit kind of look like the people who are currently teaching. Um, and I would argue that that's continued through several generations of teachers despite the fact that our um, demographics and the needs and interests of students and schools are, are rapidly changing. And, and this really, you know, there, there's always the, the issue of um, gender and race ethnicity when it comes to recruiting new teachers. And I think that, you know, in physical education, we're a little bit different than general education. They tend to be female dominant. We tend to be a little bit more male dominant. Um, but we, uh, we, we, de we uh, definitely don't have, um, enough underrepresented minority uh, teachers out in the workforce. You know, most of those teachers tend to be you know, predominantly white. So there are those kind of issues as well that I think we need to address. Um, but there's also this issue of sporting preference or physical activity experience uh, and background that, that, I, that I think becomes problematic given the focus of our field. Uh, and we tend to recruit people who were um, high level high school athletes and uh, maybe even college athletes uh, and who have experience primarily with with team sport um, and that you know by and large and, and I don't I try to stay away from sweeping statements but a lot of physical ed education programs especially at the high school level tend to emphasize team sport now I think that that's changing some and we start to see more physical activity um, you know kind of orientations uh, and, and maybe more of a fitness focus in some areas, but there's still a lot of that team sport um, dominance. Uh, and so, um, and, and I saw this play out at both Purdue University and at um, uh, Northern Illinois when I was there. At both programs, we had a, a few students that had like a dance background and they wanted to come into physical education to be teachers. And it became really difficult for them because they didn't kind of fit in with the other um, students. And, and, and I had kind of been mulling this around in my head for a while now. And when I was at the University of Alabama, I taught a graduate level course on socialization. Uh, and we revisited Dewar's classic uh, 1989 chapter in the Templin and Shemp book. Um, and and uh, she kind of argues that we need to take more of a critical approach to recruitment to, you know, disrupt this cycle that we see. Um, and uh, Kaysen O'Neill and I kind of built off of that and wrote a Jopard article a couple of years ago, you know, uh, arguing that we needed to break from traditionalism. Um, but what really struck a chord with me, what really hit it home was in the first draft of the monograph, we were arguing for, you know, recruitment. 
uh, but we didn't really have a way to, to differentiate it from what we're currently doing. And so one of the um, uh, uh, anonymous reviewers really kind of gave us the language to use in terms of differentiating between active and passive approaches. And so what we ended up doing was conceptualizing passive recruitment as this kind of approach where people come, whoever comes, comes into our programs. And, you know, they tend to be recruited primarily because somebody at some point said, hey, you know, you're good with kids or you seem to like sports or maybe you want to coach. Have you ever thought about PE? Um, uh, and, and teacher educators by and large haven't been involved in that process. And so that got us to think a little bit more about developing active approaches to recruitment where, where, you know, not to say that we don't want to recruit some students who have sport backgrounds, but probably not only those students, because that doesn't represent, you know, what people in our society do to be physically active, especially into adulthood. Right. I think that there was one, there was one sentence in here that said high school teachers should just simply ask, have you considered teaching to students? And that could be such a huge recruiting tool. Like for us, you know, at George Mason, we're, you know, meeting with the marketing team to figure out how to market our program. We're starting uh, social media. We're going into junior colleges to talk to potential transfer students who are in the education track. Um, and we've considered going into high schools, but if you think about, there's so many high schools, right? Yeah. And one PE teacher sees hundreds of students in yeah. one day. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it would be really tough for, you know, our faculty to go out and hit every single high school and talk to those teachers or talk to those students but if we teach the teachers how to just spin it and empower those teachers to just ask that question hey yep. have you thought about going into teaching and i and i think the big underlying piece to this monograph too and i'm i'm bummed that it's like embedded within this whole you know in the middle of this podcast but there's a huge teaching shortage yeah there are a ton of jobs available Right. All of our students at Mason are getting jobs as yep. soon as they are graduating. That was the same thing at Cal State Fullerton. Those who sought jobs in physical education got jobs if they were willing to move like 20 miles or 30 miles or something. Right. There's there's a ton of jobs. And I think in um, Philip Ward's chapter two, he talks about that pipeline and he puts it into a problem of the beginning, the middle and the end at the end there's a ton of jobs available. In the beginning, there's not a lot of interest. And then we're in the middle in PEEP programs kind of making some mistakes. You know, I think the, the recruitment and the retention chapters were were super, super interesting. You, know, you, you started to say a little bit about how it's been a passive recruitment and not an active. And, you know, I was surprised to see well not surprised saddened i guess to see that the best recruitment that you know faculty perceived was flyers and pamphlets and their online website yeah the old and you look at are, those are low effort absolutely but where you know show me a 16 17 18 year old kid who looks at flyers pamphlets and and websites yeah 
Yeah, you know, you, you just talked about a lot of things there that, that I think we could unpack. Um, uh, some really, really good points. You know, you, to, to start back, your, your point about, uh, you know, we can't we can't go out to every high school. Um, I, I, I think you're I think you're right about that. Uh, so I think that part of it is um, reconceptualizing recruitment uh, as as part of the professional responsibility of, of our teachers, and that comes through that comes through teacher education. That's something that um, uh, you know professional organizations like Shape America can help uh, through professional development and you know teaching teachers how to be recruiters. But they're really our best agents of recruitment because they're the people who help students develop ideas related to what physical education is and should be. Um, it's interesting, though, because uh, I'm working on a, a different book chapter right now with a colleague uh, surrounding this topic, um, and she brought up a really good point. She said, well, you know, we don't necessarily want people who have ideas about physical education that don't align with best practices to be active recruiters because then they're perpetuating this cycle. So I think that part of it is choosing your partners wisely, which is a lesson that I learned from Tom Templin when I was at Purdue. Um, you know, being able to identify maybe not every single high school in the area, but find a few PE teachers that um, do a bang up job and who are interested in helping um, kind of invest that package or that uh, that passion in the next generation. Right. Um, and and so I, I think that it, it's it's interesting because those a lot of the teachers don't necessarily have the same skin in the game that you and I do. Right. Because we we want the, you know, the peat community to thrive. We yep. understand that we're kind of looking at it going, we need more teachers to be trained properly. Yep. Whereas the teachers who are already teaching in elementary, middle, high school, they already have a job. Right. They have tenure. They if they're not looking altruistically out into the world and going, I want to give back, they might not even understand that they are the biggest recruiters for the field to survive, really. And I think that, you know, that chapter nine that you wrote with uh, Tom Templin, you know, asking how are we going to survive in the 21st century? And we need, we need to make some bold moves. I think we do. And, you know, the other thing I think we, we've kind of talked around a little bit here, but just to get at it directly, um, there are a lot of people uh, who are current teachers who have become somewhat disillusioned with the teaching profession. Um, and I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that, um, you know, student and school level accountability bring different types of pressures than we've seen in the past. Teachers are being asked to do more with less. And then we have kind of this shift where, um, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of what, what's been referred to as teacher bashing, where the public and mass media um, and parents kind of villainize teachers. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I wasn't around, I wasn't part of the teaching profession years ago, but in, in kind of anecdotal conversations that I've had with people, folks who have been out for years would, would say that that's not the way that it used to be. That, you know, I saw this graphic once where it was like 1956 and it had the parent and the teacher sitting on the same side of the table and holding the kid accountable. And they fast forwarded to like 2013. It's that same graphic, except now it's the kid and the parent yelling at the teacher. Uh, 
and, and I think that some of that gets a bit overdone, and, and I'm not sure that, you know, to the extent to which that shift is, is accurate, but, but it's something that people perceive and feel. Um, and so related to that, you talk about the, the, the issues uh, related to uh, the end of the pipeline versus the beginning of the pipeline. Um, you know, th there's this issue of teacher shortages, and that's been documented uh, in, in several U.S. states. Um, but then there's this enormous contradiction, and I'm getting passionate right now because I can't wrap my mind around this. Um, legislators in, in our state governments continue to make it more and more difficult to enter teaching through traditional pathways. They're adding more tests, raising entrance requirements. You know, in, in Illinois, it used to be, or I'm sorry, in Alabama, when I first got there, it was a 2.5 GPA to, to be eligible for teacher cert. Then they moved it to a 3.0, and we lost several students who might not have been, you know, perfect academically, but they were good with kids. They could teach well. So our state legislators are making it more and more difficult to be a teacher. And then what ends up happening is that they have teacher shortages, and then they start to freak out. So they develop these alternative pathways into teaching, these back doors into the profession, um, where you can become a teacher without ever taking a single content or pedagogy course. If you if you are in a related field, let's say, and so they're they're opening up the back door floodgate and closing the front door. Yeah, and I think that those are those are things that you know in in chapter two the warm body law from um, from uh, Arizona saying, you know, they said let's call it the warm body law, the new law, one that allows folks without any teaching credentials to lead our kids in classrooms across Arizona, as long as those men and women have at least five years ex experience in quote, relevant fields. And those fields are any content area. Well, and it, it drives me crazy, Risto, because it bastardizes um, traditional teacher education and it undermines pedagogy. You know, it, it just just because you were a, a biologist doesn't mean that you're gonna be a good biology teacher. Just like just because you were a great athlete doesn't mean that you're going to be a good physical education teacher or, or a good coach. Um, there are plenty of examples throughout history of people who were top at their sport but failed as a coach. Um, right. Because, and that screws you up down the line as well because the retention of those people who go, let's say, Teach for America or some other non-traditional pathway, they have a way bigger dropout. And... Now, Teach for America teachers, after three or more years, are able to teach almost at the same level, but none of them stay yep. because they put in their first year, they're worse, second year, they're worse, third year, they catch up, and then they leave. Yep. And, yep. you know, you, you look at the number, the dollar amount that every district pays for losing it's a enormous. teacher. It's, yep. you know, they... In the in the monograph, you you all talked about New Mexico being four or five thousand, some bigger school districts ten to sixteen thousand for every teacher that you lose because then you have to go through and train and re you know retain yep. other people, but you're letting this alternative pathway into the profession only to know that they have a way bigger dropout. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think that that's that that's quite problematic. And I mean, uh, teacher retention in terms of K twelve teacher retention uh, has hovered around fifty percent uh, after the first five years for 
for for a while, Ingersoll and Smith talked about that years ago, about how essentially half the teaching a workforce turns over uh, within their first five years. And, and, you know, so we're not developing that expertise. Um, you know, the, the, the average or the median and average years of experience, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's a lot less now than it used to be, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and then compound compound that with the fact that people who have these alternative certifications leave more often. Um, what we're ending up with uh, is kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy where we have less experienced teachers in the classroom because they're all leaving for a variety of reasons. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it, it's quite it's quite complicated. But you know, through through the monograph, if I could if I could just kind of um, shift the conversation just slightly. Uh, through the monograph, uh, and this, I want to emphasize that this was just the first step at this. Uh, uh, really, all that we did was um, survey and interview physical education, teacher education program coordinators about their perceptions of recruitment, what works, what doesn't work, and what barriers they perceive. Um, from as far as we know, this is the first empirical study of recruitment and retention in our field. And there really hasn't been much done in, in general education either. There's been a lot of commentary um, in, in physical education. Sean Bolger, Emily Jones, and a few others have written for Jopard and Quest on the topic. And those are uh, important contributions, but, but they're not empirical. Um, and, and so we, we tried to kind of take a first stab at this. And there's a lot of limitations in this research. And there's a lot more work to be done. But you know, a, a couple of big things that came away from this was that both at the recruitment and retention stage, that um, relationships matter. Uh, they matter a lot. Uh, building relationships uh, in the community with with teachers, with guidance counselors, with advisors matter. Um, and if you're able to uh, position, even even within our own departments of kinesiology, we have uh, at Illinois, for example, we have a huge um, population of exercise science students who th who think that they're going to go into OT and PT school, and and I support that. You know, I think that those are valuable professions, but they're highly selective. And you've got students who have who have GPAs that are just never going to get into those professional schools. Well, working with our academic advisors in house, we can find ways to to help them discover physical education as an option that maybe they never thought of. We're in the midst right now of doing a different research project where we're interviewing only non-physical education kinesiology majors. We interviewed about 30 of them. Um, and these are people who are not PEAT majors. And we, we talk with them, well, why are you pursuing this general kinesiology degree? And um, what, uh, you know, why didn't you think about physical education? And a lot of them, to your point before, uh, say that they never considered it because nobody ever presented it to them as an option. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't and think about it. And the biggest people who guide people away from our profession, the monograph talked about guidance counselors, yep. high school PE teachers, and parents are the individuals who dissuade students from entering PE. And I, I had the same conversation with several students at Fullerton. Yep. You know, they would say, hey, uh, you know, they're in my general class or whatever I see them. What's your plan? Or I want to go to PT school. First question out of my mouth. What's your GPA? Shit. 2.7. Nope. Okay. You you need to really think about what you're going to do. And and I'm not saying that 
PE should go and try to recruit the 2.25, 2.5 students in college, right? That's not what this is about, but it's about if you want to go to PT, you know, PA school, you got to have a 3.7, 3.8 in certain, certain schools. They're super hard to get into. And if you're not doing everything in your power, then you're going to end up with a, and I'm not bashing kinesiology degree because I have one in, in my master's program, right? But you end up with a kinesiology degree, and then what are the options? What are the long-term options in that in that field? And I think that exercise science being one of the fastest growing majors in the nation and numbers that they have increased, I I think that there's going to be some sort of reckoning down the line of, where what are the jobs what are the possibilities and we're trying to streamline at mason our program to be more flexible with those career changers because up until a couple years ago it was oh you have a kinesiology degree all right you're gonna have to go back and do two and a half years of school to go back and then they just they go somewhere else or they end up doing something else because they look at they're 22, 23. They're looking at how am I going to afford to live? In general, I need a job. And then they go out of the industry. Yep. I think that that's a critical point. And that's something that we need as, as physical education teacher ed programs. We need to be more flexible with that um, because not everybody finds their, their, uh, their ideal career when they first apply to college and you have students who go through these undergraduate programs thinking that they want to do PTOT and then realize somewhere along the way that that wasn't for them, but then they feel trapped. I think that at both the undergraduate level and the graduate level, we need to make our programs more appealing and more conducive to transfers. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Not only is that going to help our enrollment, but it's going to help this diversity issue that we've been talking about because those students have different backgrounds, different expectations, different experiences, and they'll further diversify the field. Now, at Illinois, we've done the math out, and if a a student does an undergraduate degree in kinesiology, we can get them teacher certified in a year and a half. That's great. But we, but we we don't utilize that. We don't capitalize on that. We have one student in an alternative master's degree program right now. Something that we need to do better. We need to become more nimble. We need to market that better. You know, I think that the the traditional Pete um, four-year program in some ways is gone by the wayside anyway. I mean, we only see our students here and at Alabama for two years. They do gen ed for the first two, then they have pedagogy for the second two. And I think that that's becoming an increasing trend across the country. Um, So, you know, this idealistic four-year PEAT program really doesn't exist by and large. So, you know, I think we need to be responsive. Yeah, and our move is to get to that one and a half years of bringing them in. They have a semester of student teaching and then pack their courses into that one year and then they're on the way. Now, I do not advocate that for a, and I love history, but for history majors, right? You got to have some background in a related field before you jump back in. Yeah. But another thing that I think for the Pete professors that are that are listening, you know, you you talked about your suggestions of reconsidering the relevance of some of the courses okay. traditionally included in Pete programs, as well as the program requirements that are redundant and not essential in order to enable students to graduate in four years. 
and you know thinking about providing a kinesiology 100 class or going into a kines 100 class or whatever that introductory class is to talk about hey here's the reality of the you know physical education career you don't have to be you know all team sports you can run a fitness program you you like strength and conditioning okay well you can run a muscular strength and endurance class at the you know high school level you know the we're going our secondary methods class is going to uh, a local high school and we're teaching front squat back squat deadlift in that class and you know muscular strength and endurance and health related uh, fitness components and it's we're not going there to teach flag football you know that they're they're high school kids yep that's what they're interested in that's what we're going to teach and provide and i think that you know a variety is good but also we need to kind of open up and kind of think of think of different ways and yes. other sorry the other other things that you also talked about was you know establishing a two-year to four-year pipeline. So going into community colleges, offering a pipeline that they are able to go into a community college with a clear direction of how they're going to be PE teachers by the end of those four years and, you know, tapping into that local feeder community college. Yeah. um, Yeah, you know, again, I think... uh, several really important points there, Risto. Uh, first, related to going into those kind of 100-level uh, courses. That's something that, that I do every semester. I go out of my way to, to gain access to them. Um, we have an introduction to kinesiology course, and I'm actually speaking in it this, this Thursday, that's focused on you know students who are considering careers in kinesiology. Uh, so they've already kind of self-identified as maybe this is something that I want to do, but they haven't committed or gotten so far down the track yet that it would add time for them to finish. So I think we need to kind of, t- and I think a lot of pe- people do that um, already. So that's important. But the other thing that you kind of brought up that that I, I think is critical, and, and I'm going to tread softly here because I don't want to get myself in trouble, but um, we have a lot of courses that make up the PEAT curriculum that I would argue are there for no other than legacy and historical purposes. I don't think that our students need as many courses in exercise science, anatomy and physiology, biomechanics as as they take in a lot of contexts. Historically, from what I can tell, that's because back, you know, when physical education was kind of the dominant field in kinesiology, uh, we and we started to differentiate and get all these different subdisciplines. Um, you know, you have a biomechanist that you hire into a into a department, and that person needs something to teach. So, okay, we'll we'll make it required for physical education majors to take biomechanics. Now, um, the rationale for most of those courses are that they um, uh, have content that feeds towards licensure tests. Well, that's fine. What I've seen some universities do, though, is they've taken all of the relevant material that students need to know from those exercise science courses, distill it into one three-credit-hour class, and have essentially exercise science for physical education. Uh, And and they they teach it in a more applied way, um, and they cut all of the, the fat from the program, which makes the program more flexible and, in some cases, provides the opportunity for additional uh, pedagogy and content courses, 
Um, and then it's also looking at other things. So at Alabama, for example, we recognized that our students were taking this uh, measurement and evaluation course that did not have anything to do with measurement and evaluation in physical education. It was very exercise science driven, and that's fine. Um, exercise science students need that class. What PEAT students really need is, is an assessment course. So we took one section of that uh, measurement and eval course, flagged it as PE majors only, put all of our PE majors into that course, used the, um, uh, the, the London Kirk or London Tannehill, London Kirk maybe, the assessment book, uh, as kind of the guiding framework, um, and then you know really taught them about assessment and PE. And then it was relevant and practical and applied to what they were doing, rather than this kind of abstract approach to measurement and evaluation that many of them don't understand. And if anything, it just turns them off to assessment. Right. And I think that there are a ton of classes that are like that. And I, and I see that you also, one of the other recommendations that I remember seeing at ARA, um, when the University of Texas um, at Austin gave this Invisible College presentation on how they've uh, reformatted their physical education program and they're being they're serving more than just teacher licensure right they have their base of hey this is physical education but also if you want to be a trainer you can do an internship at a strength and conditioning gym instead of your student teaching we're not going to get you a teaching license you're going to go in and get a you know a bachelor of science in kinesiology with a you know teaching focus in strength and conditioning or after school. And then there's that traditional track that has, you know, the licensure, you go in, you do your student teaching, you get your bachelor's degree in education or kinesiology or whatever it is, and you get your license to teach. And then that program now is able to recruit. I mean, if you think about any kinesiology program, if you think about how many undergraduate majors are interested in personal training. Yep, so many. Okay, yeah. Let's teach you how to teach. Let's talk about all the pedagogy behind it. You're definitely gonna need it. And then you look at your pedagogy course that was closed off and had seven students in it, and all of a sudden has 25, 30, and then the dean looks down and goes, oh, you've really increased your numbers. Looks great. Yeah, you diversify and offer something else. Penn State, uh, Penn State does something like this too, and it's how they save their program. They developed kind of a, um, a physical activity leader major. Um, and uh, for the first two years, it's common coursework. So everybody takes the same classes uh, and their numbers are pretty good. And then after that second year, they have different tracks that they can choose from. So some of them go towards teacher licensure and some of them take a non-licensure option. Uh, and they do exactly what you're talking about. And they, they kind of um, uh, focus more on, on personal training or, or uh, community-based applications of physical activity instruction, um, but, but they don't have that uh, teaching license. And so they've been able to, able to bolster their numbers and save their program because a lot of these students take the same coursework except for the teaching-specific classes. So it ends up um, making the numbers look really good. Yeah, I think I think the numbers are the are the biggest thing when you look at in the dean's point of view or whoever is looking at the budget. I think you know, we want to run small programs, but I think you know, I, I would 
I would love to teach, you know, classes of seven, really get into it. And, you know, I think a lot of people would, but I think down the line, when you look at a, you know, department of kinesiology or school of education or whatever, you end up looking down and going, wait, why does that program have such low numbers? In so many faculty. Exactly. And I think, you know, my wrestling coaching brain turns on here because I, I was part of coaching and competing for a program that, you know, in the first week of practice, my freshman year, the uh, uh, athletic director came in and was supposed to tell us that we're going to get cut. And for the next 10 years, we were always fearful of being cut. And I think in the NCAA Division One wrestling program land, I think most coaches always consider how do I maintain my program and not get cut, even though however successful they are, they always look, how do I make more connections? How do I diversify? How do I make sure that, you know, I'm not feeling complacent? And I think a lot of PE programs feel complacent, you know, and we see the numbers and, you know, you know, from, you know, specific experience with Purdue, of how it kind of slowly started reducing in numbers and you call in this monograph of taking immediate action and going being proactive if you see a dip or even if you don't you know we yeah. should be going out there to try to increase numbers in quality numbers yep and i you know i there's so much in this monograph. Like. Yeah, and I think that part of that right there is also a question of university, co college, and department leadership. At, at Purdue, I can tell you um, without, que without a question, unequivocally, that that program got cut because a new dean came in and hired a new department head, and that department head um, wanted to get rid of Pete, in my opinion. He came in and one of his first orders of business was to turn that Department of Kinesiology towards a medical model and get rid of physical education. Um, and that was really hard to watch uh, and um, difficult to experience. So, you know, but if you talk to Templin and Bonnie Blankenship, they would say that they wish they had been a little bit more proactive um, uh, in kind of recognizing the, the changing enrollment trends and res in not responding but acting before, but acting first. Um, so, you know, that, that's tough. But you know, one other thing that I want to make sure that we squeeze into this conversation uh, is the, the issue of, of barriers to faculty involvement, because I think that that becomes uh, an, important, an important challenge. Um, and two kind of big things that I took away from uh, this research study that's reported in the monograph is that when it comes to recruitment, peat faculty, A, don't feel well prepared to do it, and B, don't feel like the, the, the traditional reward structure of higher education facilitates their involvement. And that differs some across um, Carnegie classifications, but by and large, um, you know, as a field, we're not preparing people during doctoral education how to recruit. We're not providing them with professional development once they're faculty members on, on how to recruit. Um, and, and then uh, we're not giving them time and space to do it. You know, the, the traditional construction of the faculty role around teaching service and research, um, where does recruitment fit there? You know, it doesn't fit cleanly. 
Um, and so that that kind of makes it difficult to to justify and rationalize people's involvement. Yeah, and I think that there are a ton of faculty that one they don't consider it their job, yep. right? The faculty that are doing it are frustrated because there's no, like you said, no reward, right? They're not getting release time to recruit. It's all basically, do you want to grow your program? You got to do it on your own time and yep. out of the passion of bringing up your program numbers. And it's survival. Um, and I think that in, in the interviews that we did, several people were like, I don't think that this should be part of my job. But it has to be, because if it's not, our program's going to go away. Now, the interesting thing is that they viewed retention differently. Retention was viewed as being more aligned with the teaching process. So it's part of what they already should be doing as good faculty members. So essentially, the idea is it's not our job necessarily to get them here, although the current trends are making it so maybe it has to be our job. But once they get here, it is our responsibility to develop our programs in a way that promotes retention or advises out students who, who aren't aligned with the philosophy. Yeah. So I guess one last thing that I'll talk about, which is, which is controversial, right? And I saw it come across in a lot of these different, um, different chapters was the idea of, do we have too many programs? <laughs> you know, you, uh, I think, Ohio went from 28 teacher education programs in 2010 to seven in 2019, 2018. And, you know, I know I was surprised to hear Virginia has like 21 teacher education programs. Purdue I mean, we're and I had like that. Four. Yeah. And California, and one of the examples they brought up was Cal State San Marcos that got dropped, you know. California, if we look at where are teacher education programs in Southern California that serves, I don't know, 20 million people or 10 million people, Cal State Fullerton and all the way down to Tijuana border, like that was San Marcos. San Diego State is trying to get something up and running, but then you're going into private for-profit schools to try to get it. and. You know, if you go up, you know, you have San Bernardino and other other places that are kind of close. But if you're living in a greater like Orange County, South San Diego, there's not a ton of uh, accredited options. Yeah. And I, I saw this across and I don't, I don't know how I don't want to like put you on the spot on this. But how do we deal with, you know, having programs that are not quality yeah. do you do we i mean no no full professor is gonna just gonna fold their program and say you know what we're poor quality <laughs> we're done we're gonna close our doors and i'm gonna go teach kinesiology 100 for the next 10 years and not be in the field that i'm passionate about yeah no they're not um you know i, I think that that's a really important point it, it is a controversial topic it's a difficult topic to talk about um, when, when we were writing the monograph, the first version of it had none of that in it. It was quite biased, actually, uh, quite biased in favor of, of Pete. And I think that that's because when you're writing from within something, it's difficult to critique that structure. But the reviewers helped us to understand and to really emphasize that, hey, you know what? Not all K-12 physical education programs are created equally. And it's hard to say, 
but not all PEAT programs are created equally. There are good PEAT programs and there are not so good PEAT programs. There are evidence-based programs and there are programs that are still teaching the way that they taught 20 to 30 years ago and have been very resistant to change. Um, I, I think a huge part of this that I took away from it is that as Pete, we need to be willing to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, is what we're doing best? Or are we still doing things the way that we've done them a very long time ago? You know, as a scholar of socialization, it drives me crazy when teacher educators critique K-12 practice and villainize in-service PE teachers for not doing what they should be. But then if you turn the light on our own programs, in some cases, we're not doing what we should be either, but we're not as ready and willing to point the finger there. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the question of how many PEAT programs is right is a difficult one to answer. And I think that it's very contextually bound by state. Um, in Alabama and uh, Texas, for example, you have to have a teaching license in order to coach extracurricular school sport. That is going to drive up enrollments. Now, you can have a conversation about are those students coming to your program for the right reason or not. That's a related topic that maybe maybe I won't touch right now. But um, you're going to have higher enrollments, so you're going to need more programs. In other states, uh, there, there isn't that same need. Um, you know, could we trim the fat a little bit in Pete? Yeah, probably. Um, I don't want to be the person that decides what programs stay and what programs get cut. But, um, you know, are, are there programs out there that, that maybe aren't needed because there's an oversaturation in particular areas? Quite possibly. Yeah. And so if I'm a high school student, I'm, I know I want to be a PE teacher or I'm a, you know, junior college student and I know I want to be a PE teacher. If I go and Google search right now, best PE programs in the nation or in my state, I'm going to come up with a lot of online options. I'm going to come up with no real ranking or let's say I'm close to XYZ State University. I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, okay, that's driving distance from my house. That's where I'm going to go to school. Right? There is no, I mean, not that I know of, and I would love to be proved wrong about this, but how do I, as an educator in the DC metro area, millions of people around here, People in the local community know that Mason produces great teachers. A third of Northern Virginia teachers have a teaching license from George Mason, and they teach in these public schools. So we have a reputation around here, but we also have, have a good PE program, but the only way people find out about it is if they deliberately Google search George Mason University physical education program. They're not going to, there's no list of, hey, here are the programs that are accredited and here are the programs that, you know, have reconfigured re their curriculum to be more fitness focused, have a sociocultural class, have an assessment and PE class. And, you know, and I, and I feel like that does a disservice because I tried Googling doctoral programs in PE and I got online master's program results. It was yeah, so but, confusing. And while we were just talking, I pulled up Google and Google best physical education uh, 
the teacher ed programs in the country. And the there's a website, College Factual, that came up, and two of the top ten programs don't even, or two of the top ten universities don't even have programs anymore. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think you're right. I think that it, it's difficult. Um, I, I think that your point, though, really highlights the importance of staying in contact with and using your alumni network. Um, you know, so uh, we talked before about, you know, how do we partner with all these different schools out in the area when there are so many of them? Well, maybe a good place to start is to have conversations with your alumni who are teaching physical education in the area. They went through your program, so odds are, um, you know, at least they're more likely to be teaching in a way that aligns with your program than somebody who didn't. Uh, and they're probably going to be passionate about the university that's their alma mater. So that might be a great way to start and just saying, you know, hey, alumni, uh, you know, we're trying to boost our enrollment numbers. If you teach at the high school level, um, you know, you might think about sending students our way. Yeah. If you teach at the high school level and you do a good job, yeah. <laughs> send them our way. If you do a bad job, don't set it my way. But look, I think I think we set the world record for the longest podcast. Sorry. I could I could talk to you for another hour about this. I found honestly this uh, monograph was super interesting, right? You have a ton of information on there. I'm very happy that you did all the work and I just get to read it in a very condensed fashion. Um, but I would recommend anybody in the P world, the 173 people that participated, all the hundreds of faculty out there in doctoral programs to really read this manuscript all the way through and look at really examining your program. And are you doing things? Are you inventive? Are you really doing a lot of self-reflection? And I think this manuscript brings up really good points. And if you don't have the time to read, pick up chapter nine and go into the very second to last page, page 72, and look up, here are the things that we suggest that you start looking at as trends. At yeah. least do that. Yeah, so. and, you know, and, and the one last thing that I would say, Risto, and I think we emphasize this in chapter nine, is that this is not that monograph is not by any means um, an endpoint. We, we we it's not a culmination. We viewed it as a launching pad, and, and our hope is that it provides um, a little bit of, of motivation uh, and uh, encouragement for for others in the field to start looking at both the practice of recruitment and retention in Pete, but also to study it. Um, we, we need to have more empirical studies of, of what does this scene look like and what are effective evidence-based strategies for recruiting and retaining students because right now there's a paucity of, of literature related to those areas. Um, and, you know, as um, scholars, as academics, it's our responsibility to make decisions based on evidence. And if there's no evidence, we need to get it. And I think yeah. this is a good example of, you know, let's use this as a launching pad to, to go out and do just that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Richards. I appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>